Recording far too early in the morning this morning. This is off the fence. Yeah, you made me get out of bed and I will never forgive you for this. <laughs> it's not my fault you spent all night listening to Killswitch Engage having a nostalgia trip into the mid-noughties. No, that's 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 just the fault of society for making me miss my teenage years. I know, I know what you're like. You just want to recall the Blair era. <laughs> You want to go back to that time when... Uh, it was 2002. Killswitch Engage is alive or just breathing was out. Uh, we were, you know, beginning to invade the Middle East, but it seemed like it was going well. It was a better time. This is Off the Fence with me, James Fox. Alex Maskell's here too. What's up, everyone? And uh, we're going to be talking about politics. Brexit is always going to come up, as it always does. We can't not touch on it, guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening anyway. If you have joined us for the first time, we're on soundcloud.com slash offthefence. We're also on Twitter, at offthefencetalk on there. You can find us on Twitter as well, our own personal ramblings, um, and we're on iTunes as well. So if you want to subscribe, follow all those places, you can hear from us and more, get notifications, whatever. We're going to be talking about um, some interesting polling um, today, um, the political situation with um, the electoral politics of the UK as things stand. There could be a general election soon. We've got European elections coming up. We've got local elections coming up May 2nd. Um, And we'll also be talking about Julian Assange later, won't we? We will be. Quickly, um, some stories to begin with in The Guardian earlier this week about far-right terror attacks and how they're portrayed in the media. The Guardian explained, violent Islamist extremists are three times more likely than far-right attackers to be described as terrorists in the media, according to an overview of more than 200,000 news articles and broadcast transcripts. Something that's not quite surprising, I think, to anyone who's got a keen ear to how these things are portrayed in the media. Complaints like that about how those attacks are handled compared to jihadist terrorist attacks has been something that has been a criticism for a number of years. Yeah, particularly in America, where this is really the only kind of you know asymmetrical warfare that they've had any kind of experience with. The famous Family Guy sketch with the uh, you see, with yeah, the color yeah, yeah. the color palette next to the terrorist or whatever and what you should describe them as. Anyway, The Guardian continued, the research found Islamist attacks were linked to terrorism in 78% of news reports about the incidents, whereas those from the far right who carried out violent attacks were only identified as terrorists 24% of the time. So you're going from three quarters down to a quarter there. That's can't argue that's not significant. Yeah, and this has obviously been a pattern for the entire quote-unquote war on terror, that you know, far-right terror, particularly in the US, makes up the vast majority of terror activity, but it just isn't colloquially referred to as such because, and here's kind of the real point here, like, a bunch of the audience of a lot of these, uh, like, media outlets probably share grievances with the terrorists because they tend to be right-wing terrorists, and so right-wingers in America tend to at least go like, well, there's some merit to it. And they don't want to, like, those people tend to be the most supportive of people in power. So, you know, the people in power who kind of hold influence over these media organs don't want to piss off their, like, best supporters too much. Some people might hear this news and go, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, we've known that for years. It's obvious, isn't it? Obviously. Why why would you report something so obvious? Well, it's important because, you know, uh, charges like this that might be leveled against the media or charges against this leveled against anyone but particularly stuff like this about media coverage or media bias, things like that, are important to highlight with quantitative data and studies because until you use that, literally no one gives a shit. Otherwise it's just lefties whining again. Yeah. And if you want to hear a little bit more on that about the study, the study was carried out by Signal AI, 
which has built a database of news output to help firms monitor how they are covered in the media. The company analysed news reports about 11 different terror attacks that took place in the last two years, plus transcripts of TV and radio broadcasts in 80 different languages to identify a consistent reluctance by media outlets to describe far-right attackers as terrorists. So if you wanted a little bit more about you know, the legitimacy or how that study worked, there's some bits for you there. 80 yeah. different languages, um, you know, 11 different terror attacks. Yeah, and it's like... It's quite, a, quite broad. We all know why this is. It's that, you know, the... It's, it's For a start, it's rooted in racism that we're much more likely to humanise or try and understand uh, like white uh, white attackers and like attackers that kind of fit within our own political uh, purview uh, than we are to you know kind of people who we would identify as foreign and would go like oh they're they're motivated by something vast and inscrutable that mm. has nothing to do with us um, and you know, and it's it's any number of other things but it's it's uh, it, it kind of shows the systemic racism and the sort of systemic inability to seriously handle these issues that you see from, uh, like, the mass media. Moving on, obviously, Brexit is always at the forefront of political discussion at the yeah. moment. Since we were last here, it's been pushed back to... Uh, Ox- it's been pushed back to Halloween, very spooky. Yeah, and a lot of people are asking, oh, that's the latest I've heard, October 31st has been pushed back to then. But I've been saying to people, as they mention that, you know, I mean, yeah, of course it's been delayed. The whole thing's been delayed, delayed, delayed constantly. Theresa May's premiership is all about delay. One a big exercise in it. But there's far more pressing things before that October 31st deadline to do with Brexit. And really, in my mind, the European election's coming up on the thir- Thursday, 23rd of May. That is the uh, another big point. We've got the local elections coming up on May the 2nd. These events are far more, uh, you know, important right now than... You know, Brexit just being delayed all the way back to October. Absolutely. You know, far more is going to happen in this next six months. It's going to impact it again. So don't just think, oh, well, it's October now. We're going to be leaving. Um, so, yeah, European elections, Thursday, 23rd of May. Uh, it's looking all but likely that we're going to be involved. You know, it doesn't really look like like this point that's going to be called off. Yeah, I don't think we're leaving before then. And uh, part, of the re- part of the extension agreement is that we're probably going to have to do these elections. So... Um, various parties have been moving. Nigel Farage has launched his Brexit party this weekend, or this week rather. And um, Anitziana Rees-Mogg has been one of the candidates. Yeah, yeah, I mean... The- Sister of Jacob Rees-Mogg. She defected from the Tory party. He's staying. The family is split, just like the Conservative Party. <laughs> I'm, kind quite, of a, I'm kind of a bit more sceptical than that. I think that this is probably coordinated and that yeah. this is a way of making sure that the Rees-Mogg name is on is appealing to sort of both sides of the Brexit oh, totally, split. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good move for everyone involved, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, the, the Brexit party is Nigel Farage's new party, and he's also made um, uh, statements that lead people to believe that he's going to be fighting a general election on, on this party as well. It's not just a European election party. He's not going to just do this for now. He's going to carry it on. Considering his overwhelming track record of failure in general elections, I very much look forward to that. Yeah. I mean, the Westminster setup obviously blocks parties like his a lot more, smaller parties, than this European model of PR, proportional yeah. representation. Um, and what's happening on the right, as we explained last week, the non-parliamentary Eurosceptic right is is split between UKIP and this new Brexit party. As well as the people who are still sticking with the Conservatives. Exactly. Uh, so you've got you've got that split, and again, that blocks everything in a big way in the Westminster elections, uh, if we have a general election anytime soon. But in these European elections on the 23rd of May, it's PR. So you're going to have 
the same amount of people coming through. And if we look at the polls, you're looking at anything up to 25% voting for UKIP and the Brexit party combined. Um, likely to strip past the Conservatives in that, that block. Yeah, meanwhile, the... Mo- the most successful-looking single party is, of course, the Labour Party at, I think it was, 24%. Uh, I saw 20 higher than that in one... And um, we have got Britain Alex up here, so we can consult that. Um, 29%. Wow. So... <laughs> that was right, was that? Yeah, so a, a lot of coverage that has been coming around recently is that... Um, Just to put that in context quickly, uh, t- uh, remember in 2014, UKIP won the European elections. They were the largest party yeah. in those. And the last time... Um, uh, Labour got anything like that, I think was 1994 European elections. Cool, cool. So cool, you're cool. looking at a good 25. Yeah, you know, hopefully a level of success that Tony Blair could never quite manage. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think an important thing to bear in mind here is that if they get this level of vote and it's, it kind of shows itself through the number of seats they get, it's potentially enough to... Uh, make sure that the like uh, the socialist block within the European Union the social democratic block within the European Union uh, have enough um, like have enough support that they can really be directing policy particularly the next time leadership uh, positions within the EU come up uh, which is potential which has the potential to be extremely transformative so uh, you know that's definitely something to potentially look forward to with regards to Kind of, I know that there are probably some people still holding out hope for a sort of Lexit situation out there, which is just there's no one more progressive out there that we can potentially forge relationships with. The e, it's the EU or more reactionary. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Like, anyway, um, we turn significantly towards UKIP in some news of one Carl of Swindon. A.K.A. Hell, uh, Sargon yes. of a Cad, just noted, just anti-feminist whiner on YouTube, and like a dumb guy, a di- guy whose stuff can be like picked apart very easily, and there are any number of much smarter he, video essayists who've done so. Totally, totally, and all of that stuff's true. But what we always have to underline is that he has a very large following online. Um, you know, he's he got does. A million... Mediocrity never stopped anyone <laughs> online. A million subscribers to his YouTube channel. He's well known on the kind of reactionary end of the political spectrum. No, no, no. He's 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 of the left. Oh, yeah, he's, he's of the he's left, a liberal. isn't he? Yeah. He's a real liberal. Yeah, but it constantly makes videos attacking the left, so of course yeah, he yeah. is. Why can't the left get their stuff together and just be reactionary? Why are we talking about this guy? Well, the Independent report, UKIP has selected an anti-feminist Eurosceptic YouTube commentator as a candidate. But yeah, Carl Benjamin is his name. If um, they had any principle, they would boycott. They'd be like, this is illegitimate, we should have left. But they don't. Yeah. They're fundamentally grifters. Now, he is part of a group of these anti-feminist YouTubers that um, UKIP kind of, uh, what's the word, courted over the past last few months. They all said they're going to join UKIP. Uh, the other one is called Mark Meachin, the guy that made a uh, video uh, where he said gas the Jews 20 times. I'm disappointed that they aren't getting um, uh, that they aren't getting Paul Joseph Watson in there as well. Just Oh yeah, just he's another one. He's imagine one. my surprise that I'm being elected to the European Parliament. Jesus. Um, yeah, so those guys are doing that. It doesn't surprise me. I did see this coming from the kind of interviews that Gerard Bass and the party leader has done, kind of smirking about those guys. Uh, he, he's kind of... Um, He's on that. He's on that kind of troll front as well. I yeah, think. I mean it's smart youth outreach. Like these people yeah. do have a large following of dumbass kids who don't know any better. I mean they're doing more to appeal to a certain demographic of young voters than the Conservative Party are. Well, yeah. You certainly say that. 
Well, that's the 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 cons. I mean, you the don't con- have to do a lot, but <laughs> yeah, no. The the conservative, the young conservatives are all also big uh, Carl of Swindon fans. Though, yeah. like we've we've discussed this before, the young conservatives these days are all like barely constrained fascists. This guy, as well, famously one of the things he's most well known for is um, telling Jess Phillips that he wouldn't even rape her. Um, this was after Jess Phillips wrote, "People talking about raping me isn't fun, but it's become somewhat par for the course." Um, obviously an MP that receives a fair bit of abuse online. You know, I disagree with Jess Phillips on tons. I don't, you know, her track record on certain stuff. I, you know, I don't think she's someone from the, you know, yeah, she has yeah. similar it, politics as it's me. It's bad and she is bad, but no one deserves this. Yeah, exactly. Obviously after that, his followers went on to repeat these statements about not raping someone. And Miss Phillips later tweeted, 600 odd notifications talking about my rape in one night. I think Twitter is dead. And obviously these people are like, oh no, we're not, we didn't threaten her with rape. We threatened to not rape her. It's like, do you think that do you think that exalts you very many of this? Like, yeah, I mean, these people are all debate club nerds. They all think that, like, yes, they've totally caught her in a contradiction. But it, it's also like, Jesus. it doesn't matter. These people, these people are fundamentally disingenuous. It doesn't matter, like, that there's inconsistency there. Okay, let's move on. Front page of the Sunday Telegraph this morning. Something that uh, I don't think uh, a few years ago people have said, let's just take people back to 2015, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn had been elected. He's unelectable, you know. Elected as Labour leader, but he's unelectable as the Prime Minister. I'd like to show this front page to the people of 2015, <laughs> if time travel was a thing. Uh, Sunday Telegraph front page explains, Jeremy Corbyn is on course to sweep into number 10 after Theresa May failed to deliver on her promise to take the UK out of the EU by March 29th. A major polling analysis reveals... I mean, there's there's a lot there that would blow people's minds from back in 2015, yeah. uh, but because you know, of course, obviously we're never going to leave the EU for a start. But I would like to point out that it shouldn't blow your mind if you're from 2017. Yeah, like if you saw that election play out, that's when you should be realizing all of this was always going to play out as well. Yeah, this was well, this was this is the. It's it's hard to say because so much of the elite opinion kind of went against this, but this is this is the plan working. This is. Like make not not conceding to being on the other side of a fundamentally remade political landscape in which the main divide is Brexit, and then letting everyone else tear themselves apart on their own internal tensions regarding that Brexit. Like this this was how it was always like this was the plan, and the plan is working. And of course, there are still a shit ton of wreckers being like, oh, we're going to lose dramatically unless we become. Uh, a Remain party, Remain, of course, being the preferred option of 30% of constituencies in this country. Like, you know, there are still people who are trying to push this line, but fundamentally, what we see here is the Labour plan working. We see the glorious centrist parties for our politically homeless failing to really get very much support, uh, including the all the sort of the virtuous people of Labour leaving uh, to start their own party, being a complete damp squib. This is the strategy that Labour has followed uh, since 2016, really, succeeding. And whilst all that goes on, part of that, the success of that strategy is seeing the Conservative Party drop like a rock in yes. the polls. This is something we picked up last week. We explained there was the Salvation polling and uh, there was another poll last week that showed the Conservative Party dropping anything between 8 to 10 points, which is, you know... You barely ever see a drop bigger than that in, like, you know, one poll. Yeah, this is their base splitting. 
And those were the first few polls to see that. And whenever you see a shift like that in a poll for the first time, you can't react to that in a way that goes, this is what's happening right now. You have to say, well, this poll indicates this. If we see this trend continued in other polls, then that's very significant. Because it could be an outlier, you never know. And whenever something happens in a poll, there's always someone in the room that goes, oh, it's just an outlier. Um, But until you see that same trend replicated in other polls that's when you can you know that's that's the point at which you can um, start talking about it really seriously and that's what's happened in the past week poll after poll showing the conservatives dropping six percent dropping eight percent dropping ten percent um stuff that's not within the margin of error whatsoever and stuff that wasn't supposed to happen it was supposed to be that the conservatives would be the uh like the conservatives would be the leave party labor would be the remain party and it would be fought on those grounds where uh, you know it it just it hasn't panned out like that yeah. it, by avoiding that and this was always how it was going to happen whichever group conceded first whether it was the conservatives having to you know sort out like having to pick a side on their brexit divide or labor having to pick a side on its brexit divide whichever one of those was forced into a corner first was going to face this situation where the if, party has an existential crisis yeah and has a split if labor had capitulated first they would also be in this exact situation and if honestly if labor had become a remain party we would have already left the eu because the conservatives would have seen blood in the water they would have it's a great point like they would have mobilized around whatever the sort of consensus could be put together immediately because they could also see it as, well, whatever the situation is, we can destroy labor. And then they would have destroyed labor because labor would have fundamentally put off a huge portion of its voter base, like a vital portion, like probably not the, like not the majority, but a vital portion of its voter base would have been completely uh, like demoralized and probably would have not voted at all. Because that tends to be how, like, Labour's demographics go. They vote Labour or not at all. And, um, yeah, it, it would have been it would have been a complete disaster. And anyone looking at it sincerely rather than through their own kind of desperate desire as an identity to not leave the EU because that feels like we're letting, uh, like, the non-sensible people win. Like, anyone could have seen that. Like, a brief... This is something that's always frustrated me about the discourse around Brexit. There is seemingly no acknowledgement to the fact that, like, we all know 52% of people, roughly, or slightly less than 52% of people, uh, voted to leave. What we also don't discuss is 70% of constituencies voted to leave. What we don't discuss is that no matter what Jeremy Corbyn said either way, he he didn't have the big red button that cancels Brexit. The majority of, like, the majority of MPs do not want a second referendum Mm. and have shown no willingness to vote for a second referendum any number of the times that, for instance, Jeremy Corbyn has put it up to a vote. And you should remember when there was indicative votes the other week, the second referendum was the... um, It was the one most people voted for, but it was also the one way more people voted against. Exactly. It was not the closest. It's exactly what I was going to say. You know, it was the one that showed the most amount of opposition as well as the most amount of support. And, that's that, yeah. and that shows how that, you know, it creates a division. Anyway, and it was miracu- It was a miraculous show of uh, party discipline that you didn't have way more Labour people parting away from it than they definitely would under the real vote. Mm. Just to focus back on the polling once again, we said last week, I mean, I said last week, I really don't see the Conservatives ever dropping significantly below 30%. The systemic and structural reasons in the country, the media that we have, the... A situation with the Conservative Party historically. And the fact that there are a lot of people who have money in this country who don't want to pay more taxes. Yeah. So 
you know, I, I thought we could be seeing the situation with the Conservatives go from where they were in the last election, 42%, to seeing in the polls, maybe we'll see them start to drop to 30, 30%, maybe low 30s. Pool opinion this week. Labour 36%, up one. Conservatives 29%, minus six. UKIP 11 plus two, into third place, above the Lib Dems at 8%, minus one. I'm not sure about that. I think that UKIP are going to get bitten into more by the Brexit party, and I think that's going to... True, but I'm not sure if this opinion research poll included the Brexit party... I can't imagine it did. ...or Change UK. So that that comes into play there. It's worth pointing out as we... On the last episode... Also, like, Change UK are are done. Like, they're they're in the media a lot, but, like, no one gives a fuck anymore. They had that first hit where they were like, a bunch of people had left. And then people just forgot that a bunch of people left in the same way that everyone immediately forgot who John Woodcock was. Yeah. I mean, we we do need to point a few things out about Change UK and these other smaller parties is that some polling companies are prompting them in their initial, do you want to vote for these people? I think, apparently, on Servation... Um, there's the main parties and then the option for another party. And then when you go to another party, it gives you the Brexit, change UK and the others. So whether those parties are prompted initially can reflect whether people stump for them or not in that initial voting intention. But um, we'll see how that plays out. Do you think there are people who open that option, look at them and go, Christ, I've got a fucking Labour. (laughs) Certainly there's... Certainly, there's the, the, the reality that Change UK probably aren't going to stand in every single constituency in the country. No. So when we're doing a national voting intention, it is always going to be suppressed by a significant degree. No, no, no. Wherever there is a waitrose, Change UK will stand. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so there's that from opinion. And I should point out as well, I saw a couple of people mention this. Labour 36, Conservatives 29, UKIP 11, Lib Dem 8, Green 4. Those are the exact same numbers as the 2015 general election with the top two parties swapped position yeah um which i think is quite um quite striking to look at really um when you think that where the labor party were in that place it, it really literally it literally feels like the the conservative party are facing the existential crisis that apparently the labor party were in 2015 because we couldn't have a left-wing leader could we have the party i mean they did have an existential crisis because they couldn't continue being a centrist party yeah, because yeah. it wasn't working no one wanted to go but don't, but don't, don't you remember ed miliband lost because he was too left-wing I've got to admit that it's almost that is the f- the funniest line I think of of the decade well, in British he politics. Was, he was too left wing relative to David Miliband, the one who they actually liked, except for anyone who actually had to have personal contact yeah. with him. <laughs> um, but like he is the left wing brother of the two, and like both are big disappointments compared to Big Daddy Ralph, of course. But real quick, another one on the polling front. You gave you Gov came out with another one of their polls uh, in the weekend just gone. They are the polling company that poll the most frequently, so they have the most data pumping out, um, so you see their stuff more. Um, they have had Labour being hit by this, uh, the new anti-Brexit party, Change UK and other, the Lib Dems. They've seen that the, the Remain exit in the Labour Party, they've they've measured it larger than the other, comp- the other polling companies have. So they've kind of broken ranks a little bit in their methodology. Sure, and um, that's resulted in Conservatives coming significantly higher in their stuff than a lot of other mm. polling companies. And here we have uh, a poll from them this past weekend. Labour on 32% up one. The Conservatives dropping even more by minus four to 28 points. 28! 28! 28. I, don't, I don't remember ever seeing a poll um, in the past few years. I think the last time they were on something that low was something like 2013 or 2014. 
Um, and it's worth mentioning again, this is all before a general election has been called and campaigns have started. Campaigns, yeah. of course, being the thing that the sort of left Labour Party has shown itself to be most adept at, mm. according to the sample size of one that we have so far. Yeah. You know, if they can replicate even some small fraction of the massive rise that they managed in 2017, these margins are just going to increase. Yeah. And people ask, you know, is Corbyn's brand tarnished now? I really don't think it is. Uh, yeah, I, but you clearly know. not. He's still leader. His Sorry, guys. Yeah, his popularity ratings. Yeah, they're significantly low compared to people like Theresa. I mean, Theresa Mayer going down as well. There's other people who might have less name recognition that might be have slightly higher popularity ratings. That's because people don't know them. So until we know them, and the only person out there who's not um, the leader of a party who has the same level of name recognition that Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn has is Boris Johnson. He, he's way more unpopular than. Um, the other two. But anyway, um, all those popularity ratings may be low for Corbyn, as I was saying, but if you look at the graphs, you look at the trends, they're the same place they were before the 2017 election. Also, like, good. Your support for a party shouldn't be built into its leader. It should be built into its policies and into the sort of internal forces that within the party that seem to favour mm. your values being communicated into the halls of power. It is tricky with... Uh, it the, shouldn't be cults of personality. It is tricky with the popularity stuff because every polling company has a different question around it. Who do you want to be PM? Who do you think would do the best job? Who do you think would be a good PM? Who's doing better at their job as party leader? And the problem with questions like that is they're all entirely subjective on your understanding of the word good. Yeah. What is a good job for Jeremy Corbyn to do? If you're someone who is incredibly hostile to the political project of someone like Jeremy Corbyn, then your understanding of what a good job he would be doing is something completely different to someone who's incredibly supportive of that political project. Yeah, like if the only way that Jeremy Corbyn could be doing a good job is if he volunteered to be decapitated by Jess Phillips. It's the same yeah. it's the it's the it's the same like frustration I have with the question and the polling around is are the government doing a good job of the Brexit negotiations and it goes up to like 80% no you know it's like well of that 80% saying no they don't all agree on why it's yeah. not the what it's the why because people like Alistair Campbell um, you know and Marc Francois will both agree that they're not doing a good job but for completely different and ideologically diametrically opposed reasons. Also, can I just say, I hate that we have to fucking know who Marc Francois is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he... he on the whole Marc Francois, this week he's been saying uh, we should be having another vote of no confidence in Theresa May because the last time we had the vote, we didn't have all the right information and uh, we were under a pretense that she was going to deliver Brexit and now that she's not and we, we know different stuff, we should be able to vote again. Yeah, anything which, else I mean, we could justify under those grounds there, Mark? <laughs> interesting, yeah. Um... But yeah, there's also from the Sunday Telegraph on on that very question of having another leadership change with the Conservative Party. Uh, two surviving former 1922 chairman, Michael Spicer and Archie Hamilton, say Conservative MPs can change the party's leadership rules and force out Theresa May in the next few months. Now, when we actually look at these quotes, they basically ask these two guys who are the, the last chairmans of the 1922 committee which is basically the committee that decide how leadership elections happen and work and everything like that they drew up the current rules and they, they basically said well conservative mps are responsible for their party if they wish to change these rules there is nothing standing in their way um so graham brady who's the current chairman he says it is my understanding that the rules could in future be changed by the agreement of the executive 
Uh, he added that it was less certain that it would be possible to change the rules during the current period of grace, which runs to 12th of December. That period of grace is describing the time when you're not allowed to trigger a leadership election in the Conservative Party because they tried to do one in December and they fucked it up. I mean, they didn't fuck it up. They voted not to do it. Well, no, that, no, no, no. Well, yeah, true. I'm saying they they fucked up the vote in no confidence. Well, again, the coup, that, the coup messed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes it sound like a mistake. What it was was these people failed. Like, yeah, they, yeah. They, they were they were beaten by the by the power of Theresa May, and you know they will be vanquished again by our glorious leader. Yeah, yeah. I mean. 12th of December, put that date in your diary, because if it hasn't happened by then, you can guarantee on the 12th of December, it is, it is there's no going to be, not, not going to be any messing around. I mean, there's going to be one before that, to be honest. Yeah. They're, they're trying to force one at the moment. They're, with Jeremy Corbyn knocking on number 10's door, um, and with everything going on with Brexit at the moment, there's no way these people are going to just sit on their hands for, what, like eight months or however much it is, seven months, until the end of the year, and go, all oh, right, well... Clock's finished, uh, let's go. <laughs> they are going to try and get it way done before then. Um, I would probably think before August. I mean, I'm personally looking forward to seeing whatever the hell happens at the next Conservative Party conference. Wow, yeah, wow. That's going to be just just like people returning home after a war. It will be, be a war zone. It's going to be pretty brutal. Anyway, quickly on Julian Assange, you might have heard about the co-founder of WikiLeaks. He is someone who is due to be uh, extradited to the US potentially. Yeah, he's he spent uh, what was it seven years uh, in in Ecuadorian embassy uh, in sheltering from uh, p- potentially being extradited uh, on charges of sexual assault mm. uh, in Sweden that theoretically uh, would have opened him up to then being extradited to uh, uh, to the U.S. for far more pernicious charges of basically publishing classified information and helping protect a source effectively which they're trying to claim a criminal charges and it's it's basically the 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 problem is that like obvious and i'm just going to assume that this is our party line here obviously (laughs) these are credible charges of sexual assault that he absolutely should face uh some form of justice for but Everyone who isn't deliberately performing naivety knows that whatever happens, he will also be uh, extradited to the US where he will face some sort of kangaroo court that will get him put away for essentially being the publisher of classified information that the US found embarrassing and just not being enough of a name for it to look bad like The Guardian would be or The New York Times would yeah, be. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, this thing is not complicated, guys. And the people that are like, well, yeah... I mean, it's complicated in that it is I- a basically irresolvable tension between this guy should face justice uh, for the allegations of sexual assault, but he's also, in doing so, would also be subject to forces that are fundamentally unjust on yeah. a completely different ground. But people saying, you know... Oh, the well- irresolvability of that is dumb but like it, it the de-resolvability of that is a tremendous problem that i haven't seen anyone really manage to pick apart as to how those things would be achieved other than the sort of uh position that was being uh like put forward by the labor front branch which is that we should get some sort of assurance from sweden that he won't be extradited for human rights reasons yeah uh, to the u.s that's the only coherent position and of course they were wildly attacked by it 
by everyone from, again, Jess Phillips to unnamed uh, MPs in the Sunday Times. Because, of course, what they see is, it's weird that he's uh, protecting this rapist. And it's, well, at literally no point has anyone involved with the Labour front bench talked about protecting him from rape charges or done anything to delegitimize the rape charges themselves. It's that we all know what the next step is and that either you give a shit about being able to publish like classified documents that the government and the foreign policy apparatus finds embarrassing or you don't. Yeah. Uh, we are quickly running out of time. So uh, thanks for listening. If you've been with us, this is Off The Fence. Catch us online as well. Check us out on Twitter. Um, we tweet on there throughout the week. So if you want to hear more from us, we're on there. At Off The Fence Talk. You can subscribe on iTunes and on SoundCloud.com slash Off The Fence. You can indeed. I've been James Fox. I'm Alex Maskell. Cheers.